The Window on the World, an international press review by the European Democratic Party, bringing you weekly news and commentaries that matter. Happy New Year and welcome to the new episode of the Window on the World press review podcast. Today is Friday, the 13th of January, and in this podcast we will hear the best editorials from around the world on the course of war in Ukraine, the assault on the headquarters of Brazil's highest institutions, the migration crisis. We start right away with the first series of editorials. As we mentioned in the opening, the first topic of the day is the progress of the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. This week, it is the city of Solidar in the Donbass region that is the main theater of combat. The city is particularly important both militarily because of its strategic location in the area and economically because of its salt mines. Meanwhile, Ukraine's civilian population continues to suffer. The latest data from the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees reports that some 8 million Ukrainian refugees have left their country and approximately 7 million are internally displaced. The editorial with which we begin this first part of the podcast comes from France, from the newspaper Le Figaro. According to the journalist Isabelle Lasserre, the announced supply of tanks by France, Germany and the United States would be evidence that we are at a turning point in the conflict. The West is no longer content to help the Ukrainian army resist Russian forces, the colonist explains, but wants to allow it to resume the offensive. While Putin, for his part, seems determined to prolong the conflict, on the other hand, Kyiv's allied countries have every interest in putting a swift end to the war. Rising inflation and energy prices are indeed putting a strain on the leaders of European countries. In the US, the public opinion is losing interest in the Ukrainian cause, especially among Republicans. In addition to domestic issues, there is another reason behind the recent acceleration, diplomatic inflexibility in Moscow. European attempts to reason with the Kremlin's leader have failed, Lasser writes. Moreover, Putin's war goals have remained the same since the beginning of the conflict, despite the defeats suffered on the ground by his army. This would have led Washington and major European capitals to bet on a Ukrainian military victory. But, the journalist concludes, this should not prevent us from reflecting on the post-war period and the work to be done to rebuild a European and international order. Supporting Kyiv's unconditional victory as the ultimate goal, however, may not be so simple. So thinks Frank Ledwidge, columnist for the British newspaper The Guardian. If we place the conflict in Eastern Europe in the recent historical context, Ledwidge writes, a disturbing similarity emerges with the last two failed conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. The lack of clear objectives and a clear strategy to achieve them. It is up to the US and therefore NATO and its allies to define a goal first, as they are the main Western actor in the conflict and major supplier of aid to Ukraine. So far, we've had at least three very different articulations of broad US strategy for Ukraine. Last March, U.S. President Biden, in a statement quickly retracted, said he was aiming for the fall of Putin's government. Shortly thereafter, Secretary of Defense Austin stated that the U.S. should weaken Russia and its military to the point of preventing it from future invasions. Finally, Secretary of State Blinken said they will support Ukraine until it regains the territories it has lost since the war's inception. Three strategies, all very different and unclear particularly when compared to Kyiv's determination in retaking Russian-controlled territories such as Crimea, lost well before the invasion that began last February. Defining a clear end and outlining a strategy to achieve it would allow Western allies to calibrate a set of plans and deadlines as far as aid is concerned. At the same time, it would give Ukraine certainty as to how to plan future military operations, limiting the risk of possible defeats. The importance of clear war, aims and strategy may not make itself apparent in the early days of a campaign, the colonist concludes, but it becomes evident over time. We cannot run the risk in a cause as just as the one we're fighting of ending up with a war without a clear endpoint. 
We close this first part of the episode by moving to the German newspaper Der Spiegel. For historian Yuval Noah Harari, Russia's attack on Ukraine shows that if we take peace for granted, we will lose it. For the historian, the year since 1945 has shown that war is not inevitable, but a human decision. Although regional and local conflicts were still relatively common, states seldom used force to shift their borders, and no country was wiped off the map as a result of war. The order built was not perfect, and poverty is still widespread, but it is undeniable that it improved life in both the most developed and poorer countries. The new peace was not the result of a divine miracle, Harari explains. It was the result of collective decisions and collaboration. The world order began to crack when both developing countries like China, India and Brazil, as well as established superpowers like the United Kingdom and the United States, turned their backs on it. The Brexit and the Trump presidency were the tipping point. They promoted the superiority of individual national interests over those of the rest of the world, opposing supranational institutions without offering an alternative global order. As history has already shown, stronghold states are rarely friendly. Each seeks its own well-being, at the expense of its neighbors. In this sense, after the COVID-19 pandemic, Putin may have thought it was the right opportunity to deliver the coup de grace. Should Putin win, autocrats around the world would come to the conclusion that wars of conquest are again feasible. Populists and autocrats would pit their patriotism against global cooperation. But, the article concludes, one can be patriotic without hating foreigners. If you love your country and your countrymen as patriotism dictates, then to protect them from wars, pandemics and climate crisis, the best way to do that is to cooperate with others. Let's go across the ocean for this second part and talk about Brazil. Last January 8th, the offices of Parliament, the Supreme Court and the Presidential Palace were stormed by some 15,000 supporters of the far-right president who lost the elections, Jair Bolsonaro. The attack came a week after the inauguration of new president Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, known as Lula, whose victory Bolsonaro has not yet acknowledged. Once inside the institutional headquarters, supporters of the former president vandalized the premises, breaking windows, furniture and even works of art. To date, the toll of the assault amounts to millions of dollars in property damage, dozens of injured and more than 1,000 arrests. Many, including President Lula, accused Bolsonaro of promoting the assault. For his part, the former president defended himself in a tweet saying that peaceful demonstrations, according to the law, are part of democracy. Looting and invasions of public buildings like today's, as well as those practiced by the left in 2013 and 2017, are illegal. Bolsonaro added that he has always acted in accordance with the Constitution, the law, and democracy. The recent assault was condemned by the international community. Many parallels have been drawn with the January 6, 2021 assault on the U.S. Congress, which occurred under similar circumstances after the electoral defeat of former President Donald Trump. The first editorial on this second issue comes from the Spanish daily El País. Despite the seriousness of the facts, for colonist Thomas Trauman, the attack could prove to be an opportunity for the new president, Lula, to broaden his range of alliances and corner Bolsonaro's radicalism. Lula won the election with just 0.9% more votes than Bolsonaro, thus inheriting a country split down the middle. But according to polls cited in the article, about 90% of Brazilians have a negative opinion of the assault on institutional offices. Not only citizens, even politicians close to the former president, including the president of the parliament, Artur Lira, condemned the event. A condemnation also reiterated by several governors linked to Bolsonaro, proving that after January 8th, being close to Bolsonaro has become politically toxic. So it seems that, even in their opposition to Lula, the latter's opponents are going out of their way to distance themselves from the assault and the former president. 
right-wing and center-right groups that reject Lula but are Democrats could be pushed towards a more moderate option, Traman speculates. If so, Lula might gain enough support to undo some of his predecessor's reforms, such as the green light to deforest large areas of the Amazon forest. The protests in Brasilia were supposed to hit Lula's ability to govern, the journalist concludes, but in practice, they damaged Bolsonaro's credibility. On the other hand, the analysis of historians Oliver Companion and Anaïs Fléché, published in the French newspaper Le Monde, is a completely different tone. For the two historians, recent events are the evidence of the fragility of the democratic pact established in Brazil after the fall of the dictatorship in 1985. A crisis that comes from afar, they explain, which began with the demonstrations of 2013 and culminated with Bolsonaro's election in 2018. During his four years in office, the former president repeatedly attacked the federal Supreme Court, institutions, and finally questioned the validity of the 2022 elections. The military police also showed complacency towards the insurgents. Indeed, images of the riots show police officers escorting the crowd or taking selfies with the rioters. Thus, the ambiguity of the armed forces, of which some members were an active part of the Bolsonaro government, is evident. But the most important aspect that has characterized these years of political chaos are the country's huge socioeconomic inequalities, which have worsened during Bolsonaro's tenure. These would be responsible for the systematic questioning of a common destiny governed by the rules of democracy. The main challenge for Lula, now at the head of a coalition marked by strong political differences, will be to restore the idea of a more equitable distribution of wealth at the service of a renewed democratic pact. But it is not certain that today's economic conditions will leave him with the ability to do so, the columnists conclude. The latest editorial on Brazilian events takes us to the American continent in the US-based New York Times. Although the attack may have irreparably damaged Bolsonaro's political figure, it could still leave a risky aftermath for Lula. Looking back to Brazil's difficult economic situation, political instability could also hurt the economy, discouraging foreign investors, explains columnist Peter Coy. From 2003 to 2010, during his first term, Lula was able to expand the state's welfare programs, taking advantage of the high prices of commodities that Brazil exports. The global economic situation today, however, is completely different. Commodity prices are faltering because of expectations of a global economic downturn. In addition, Brazil's central bank has also raised interest rates on money to curb inflation, raising them to 14%. Inflation in the country stands at 6%. Lula is thus caught between two fires. On the one hand, he needs to demonstrate fiscal responsibility so as to not scare off investors. On the other hand, he needs to spend public money to satisfy the public opinion's expectations. Add to this the fact that most of Brazil's potential domestic investors support Bolsonaro. There is no second honeymoon for Lula, Coy concludes. Let's change the subject altogether in this last part and talk about immigration. The meeting between the Italian Prime Minister, Giorgia Meloni, and the President of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, was also an opportunity to talk about the management of migrants arriving in Europe. Maurizio Ferreira tells us about it in the pages of the Italian newspaper Corriere della Sera. The current Dublin regulation for the management of migrants has created a situation of systematic violation of human rights, which also has been highlighted several times by the European Court of Human Rights. Extremely long times to follow up on asylum claims, difficulties in social and labor integration, expulsions not carried out, reception centers that are inhospitable to say the least. It is clear that the current system is not working for migrants first and foremost, but also for the countries of first arrival, namely Malta, Greece, Italy and Cyprus. Now an ambitious reform called the European Immigration Pact is being discussed, states Ferreira. 
Among other things, the agreement calls for a mandatory solidarity mechanism with minimum thresholds for relocating migrants based on each country's population and GDP. However, the discussion is blocked by Poland, Hungary, and not even the Swedish presidency of the Council of the European Union seems interested in the topic. The immigration issue is thus also intertwined with Italy's domestic political affairs. Italy has every interest in seeing that the new pact is approved. But in both the Italian and the European parliaments, Meloni will have to succeed in convincing her allies. The bet is to definitively leave behind the sovereignist ideology, which rejects integration and is based on passing the buck between EU countries, Ferreira concludes. Let's now talk about an instrument that is already in the European Union's legal system, namely the European Border and Coast Guard Agency, better known as Frontex. According to researcher Bernd Perussel's editorial published in Belgium's EU Observer, Frontex must prove that it can help and support national border guards and ensure that the fundamental rights of migrants are respected. The occasion to talk about this is the appointment of Hans Leitens as head of agency, after the resignation of the previous director, Fabrice Leggeri, following allegations that he carried out illegal pushbacks of asylum seekers. For Peruso, the solution would be more engagement by Frontex in the EU countries. Rather than leaving the management of European borders to local military forces or private contractors, it would be better to create a reliable complaint mechanism for people affected by Frontex operations. Problems and incidents, especially in such sensitive situations, will happen anyway. The important thing is to be transparent and to have the means to resolve them. The EU should establish an independent system to monitor respect for human rights at its borders, the researcher proposes. The context is certainly not easy. Many political forces believe that borders should be impenetrable and will not be enthusiastic about reviewing or questioning border deterrence practices. If we are to prevent Frontex from becoming just a deterrence force instead of a management and reception force, civil society, academics and the media must continue to draw attention to the problems and propose solutions to ensure that the EU's borders do not become zones of lawlessness. We close this press review with an editorial addressing the issue of the integration of migrants in our societies. For Philippe Bernard, a columnist for the French newspaper Le Monde, the process of integrating the children of immigrants into French society often leads to making their path within society invisible, fueling victimhood, hatred and misunderstandings. According to a study conducted by two research institutes, in 2016, 26% of children of North African immigrants occupied intermediate, middle or higher professions. That is, they work in hospitals, schools, labor unions and the armed forces. It is these that are too often not talked about, thus also creating ambiguity around the word integration. The social and media disappearance of children of successful immigrants, the columnist argues, can be explained precisely by the French-style integration process, which reserves the question of origins and religions for the private sphere. We can only imagine, the article concludes, what the words of writer Michel Houellebecq, according to whom the desire of French population of origin is not that Muslims assimilate, but that they stop stealing and attacking them, or another good solution, that they leave. We have now reached the end of this installment of the Window of the World Press Review podcast. We thank you for following us, and we look forward to seeing you next Friday with more editorials from around the world. This week's editorial work was edited by Daniele Ruzza at the microphone Bianca Bittencourt. 